It's not a wonderful life in Silicon Valley as tech companies and investors make a bank run and find out there's no money in the vault. We discuss what the Silicon Valley bank collapse means to you. And is your bank next? Plus, the president unveils a nearly $7 trillion annual budget. It'll be dead on arrival in Congress. And America's already over the debt ceiling, folks. We can expect a nasty battle coming in Washington. We're going for a run on the midnight ride. Won't you come along? Let's go. It's Monday, March 13th, 2023, and you're listening to your home for misinformation and disinformation, also known as The Truth, the Midnight Ride podcast with Connor Coughlin and Paul Runyon. Special thanks to Mike and the Mechanics, an old favorite of ours, silent running. Paul, are you running to the bank? Should we be running to the bank today? Well, it's funny. The whole term going for a run is like taking on a new a whole new meaning. Well, I went on yesterday, I, I went out for a run in the neighborhood and I go to my wife and I'm like, oh, I'm going for a run. And she just assumes, oh, to the bank. Like that's literally <laughs> all anybody is talking about this weekend. So you're wearing your new balance and you've got a duffel bag there. Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, <laughs> jogging attire. But yeah, let, we're going to break down the Silicon Valley bank collapse. And there's a lot of our listeners who are in the middle of the country, nowhere near Silicon Valley, that may be thinking like, you know, good, it's schadenfreude or, or whatever. These, you know, leftist tech investors, these people who may have been given loans with no collateral tech startups. I don't have a lot of sympathy for them, but this may be affecting all of us. Right, Paul? Well, Yes. I mean, it's very interesting too, right? That this bank, Silicon Valley Bank, was the home of high-tech lending and high-tech support and high-tech banking. I mean, this is really the bank that keeps those venture capital-funded startups going, that ecosystem in Silicon Valley. Almost, I had never heard of the place. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge bank. Um, I had heard of it but it's also very niche. It's one of these places where, you know, if you're in big tech, it's cool to have your money there, right? It was like, they're all, you know, everybody out there wears the Patagonia vests, sipping their <laughs> lattes. And it's like the cool thing to do to, to have your, your startup at Silicon Valley Bank. But as all things happen, whenever there's group think like that, if anything wrong happens, it happens to everybody. And that's exactly what happens with Silicon Valley Bank. Well, it's sort of reminiscent. And, and, you know, you heard in our intro sort of the reference to It's a Wonderful Life, where you have the bank manager there and people start to to doubt the creditworthiness of the bank or the, or the stability of the bank. And they hear some news that there could be a problem. And so they realize, you know, I better go get my money right now or else... I could be left holding the bag. And that's exactly what happened here. As investors learned, the parent company of the bank was selling off some of their assets. And I know you're going to talk about that, Paul, but then that essentially caused people who had money in the bank to try to go get it. And basically they had to they had to shut this bank down last week. That that had a lot of ripple effects on the stock market and everything else. 
to the point where it's not like, you know, the days of It's a Wonderful Life where you had to be there at nine o'clock in the morning on Monday. People can now run to automated teller machines and get their money out, or they can go on an app and try to transfer their money or, or withdraw their money. And apparently that may already be happening in banks outside of Silicon Valley, right, Paul? Yes. So let's kind of backtrack a little bit and discuss how this entire situation has come about in the first place. And it really goes back to COVID and the reaction of the government to COVID. So if you see what was happening back a few years ago, COVID happens, the government decides to print a lot of money, starting with the PPP loans and the very first congressional actions in the Trump administration um, back in 2020, and obviously exacerbated by the American Rescue Act and the infrastructure bill. You've got the government printing so much money. At the same time, the Federal Reserve cut the interest rates down to zero to stimulate the economy. So you had this double-pronged piece that we've talked about before on the Midnight Ride of lots of money out in the system, zero interest rates, which then caused all of these financial dislocations, which eventually caused inflation. While interest rates were at zero, banks were buying long-term bonds instead of short-term bonds to get a little bit of a higher yield. So if you buy, say, a U.S. Treasury historically that was three months long, you're getting like point, almost no interest in return at all. And then if you buy the long-term one, you get a little bit of a return. So banks, in an effort to get a higher return on their investment, were buying these long-term bonds. Now, for those of you that, that understand banking, you'll know that when you put your money in the bank, it's not really, you know, the bank is not saying, okay, well, this is Connor's money and we're going to coordinate off somewhere. They take that money and they lend it out. And what was happening is they were putting it in these long-term bonds. Now, fast forward now, the Fed has increased interest rates, right? As a result of all the money being in the system. As a result of all the money being in the system and trying inflation. to... Inflation. Exactly, exactly, to stop inflation. And what happens now is that as the economy has slowed down, as less deposits are coming into the bank, as fewer loans are being made to some of these tech startups, the bank has had to sell these long-term bonds that they own in order to raise capital. And because the interest rates went up, the value of the bonds went down. So a few days ago on Wednesday... Explain that to us, you know, the layman, Connor Coughlin, and, and those in the office. So let's say you took out a bond for, let's just say, a million dollars. And uh, that bond had a, a term of, you said it's a long-term bond. Could be a 10-year, let's say, 10-year bond. A 10-year, okay. At that 10-year bond, you would get, I don't know, 6% interest. Just, I don't know. You, you tell me what interest it would have. Back then, when interest rates were zero, you were literally getting like 0.5% return. On a long-term bond. Yeah, and so the value of the bond is is higher. It's a little bit complicated, but the value of a bond is always at $100, right? That's, that's what they, they value the bond at. When investors bid it up, they're willing to pay more money for that bond, which will then give them, in effect, a lower return. So they're willing to pay for that bond more money. That's what happened when the interest rates were at zero. So those bonds were trading for over $100. Now, when the 
when the interest rates go up, investors are saying, well, I'm not going to pay as much for that bond. So they're selling the bond to an investor. Yes. Okay. And that's what they're doing. And so they're selling it at a loss. So that $100 bond that would have in eight more years been worth $110 or whatever it is, or $100 and, you know, $103, whatever it is, the investor says, all right, I'll buy it from you uh, for $90 or something like that. Yes. That's... That's a scenario. Yes, that's a scenario because the interest rates are higher. So the banks got less than what they paid. That's what I'm getting at is, is, you know, okay, all right. So they got less than what they paid. So they took a loss. They took a loss. They did a filing on Wednesday with the SEC that said, we have a $1.8 billion loss because we had to sell some of these bonds. And the minute investors in Silicon Valley bank or depositors saw that, they were like, wait a minute. The bank just took this huge loss. Which they wouldn't do if there wasn't a serious problem. Exactly. So I better take my money out. Within one day, the bank had about $180 billion of deposits. And within one day, they tried to take $42 billion, tried to get brought out of the bank. Within, say, 24 hours, the entire bank collapsed. They did not have the assets on hand to be able to return everybody's money because they don't hold on to that $42 billion it's, or that $180 billion. It's all lent out. So they didn't have that money. It's loaned out. But like, if you were to wait until the first of the month, for instance, where you know loan payments start coming in, would they even have enough then to pay out these people? Probably not, right? No, definitely not. And it happened so fast that the feds came in and shut down the bank on Friday in the middle of the day, which is unprecedented. I mean, usually when Washington Mutual, which was previously the biggest, which was the biggest bank failure in U.S. history, this is number two, which happened during the 2008 financial crisis, they were able to wait until after the close of business. They announced, you know, during the week, they announced that the bank is closing and this is how it's going to work. So, you know, somebody buys out the bank, whatever it is. In this case, it happened so fast. They did it in the middle of the day. Police were sent to all the bank branches. There was like crime tape set up. There were people there trying to get their money out and they were not able to do it. And what makes matters worse is that the federal government insures all deposits up to $250,000, right? So if, you know, most Midnight Rider listeners out there, you know, most people in America don't have more than $250,000 in a bank account. But in the case of Silicon Valley, only about 5 to 8% of their accounts were $250,000 because they do a lot of, of banking with businesses. So businesses often maintain, have to maintain a lot more than that because they have to make payroll every two weeks. They have expenses. For example, Roku... You've heard of Roku? It's like a streaming yep. service. Don't use them, heard of them. Yep. yep. Have you heard of Roblox? It's like a video game. Yep. Yep. I know your daughter probably likes it. I know my kids love Roblox. So to give you an example, Roku had $450 million in checking account at Silicon Valley Bank. That money is now gone and frozen. That means that companies like that cannot pay their employees. Yeah. I was just going to mention that. So you've had all of these tech companies laying people off already before this happened. But now if they can't, and by by the way, I heard a a pretty 
boss story about Elon Musk at Twitter. I, guess, I don't know if you heard of this. Just quick, quick little side tangent. He sent an email out to a lot of his managers and said, hey, I want you to tell me, every one of you, I want you to tell me the name of, of an employee that you think is deserving of a promotion. And so that when they gave the name, he fired the managers and promoted them to take their jobs. <laughs> that is hilarious. Boss, boss moved by Musk. But Twitter's been laying people off. Other tech companies have been. A lot of the employees left Silicon Valley because they were working remotely. But there have been revenue revenue problems in the industry. Even some of the big streaming companies have had to cut back on content. You know, so this this economic malaise in Silicon Valley is only compounded by this bank failure because, as you mentioned, if the money is not there, then people aren't going to get paid on Friday. Well, exactly. The people are not going to get payroll. You know, middle of the month payroll is coming up in a few days. You know, it, it's this week. So there's going to be, are there going to be people not paid? I, I already read an article about Etsy. I don't know if you use Etsy. I know my wife likes it. You can order some things. Etsy sellers, you know, they make custom apparel. Yep. That type of thing. They use Silicon Valley Bank to process their payments to Etsy sellers. So essentially, that means that when they're going to pay, people buy things on Etsy. Etsy then sends the money to Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank disperses it to the sellers. What happened is they dispersed the money, the bank went under, and all that money got lost, frozen. And now Etsy sellers are not getting paid, at least right now. So that's another side effect of what's happening with this bank. So there's this whole ecosystem happening within Silicon Valley Bank that is making it is compounding issues right now. And it's the weekend. So we don't, you know, or it was the weekend. So we're, we're getting ready for a, a very interesting week indeed on what's going to happen. Yeah. And let's, let's talk about, again, the money you mentioned, you know, everyone who has 249,900 or $250,000 or less, yep. they have insurance covered by the FDIC, but most of their Account holders are these businesses, as you said. And again, most Midnight Ride listeners have zero sympathy for Silicon Valley elites. In fact, I'm sure a lot of people were cheering going, yeah, good. Yeah, couldn't have happened to a nicer group, right? Yeah, exactly. That money is not insured above $250,000. Yeah, it's not. So what's what happens is... I mean, so what what should we do? I, I mean, I... I know what you're going to go to and, and let's, we can, we definitely want to hear that. But, you know, in my mind, I would say, again, I'm not a, a financial whiz, but I would be like, hey, you know what? That's tough. I'm sorry, but you got to eat it, right? Eric Swalwell, our favorite Democratic representative, who I think his district covers the Silicon Valley area, said, we must make sure that all these deposits exceeding the 250 are honored. Banking is about confidence. If depositors lose confidence in the safety of deposits over 250000 then we are in trouble. I hate to say it, Paul, but maybe Swalwell for once in his life is right about something because it's not just Silicon Valley Bank, is it? Uh, it's not. But what, and we'll get into that in a second. But the problem is, is that there's a thing called moral hazard. And if you are bailing out a bank, then everybody knows, okay, well, if this happens again, or this happens to me, then, then we will get, then, you know, this other bank will get bailed out. And when do you, when do you stop? 
And then it just encourages banks to do risky lending. And what ha what's happened with Silicon Valley Bank is they made a lot of loans also to these tech companies um, that were risky with zero, no collateral. Like most banks, or a lot of banks anyway, most of the loans they make are, say, mortgages or home equity loans. Those have collateral, right? If somebody can't pay their mortgage, the bank can take the house back and then they have collateral that they can sell and make some money on it. In this case, there is no collateral. So the, the, those loans go completely bad. And when the FDIC was coming in and intervening, you know, normally you try to find a buyer for a bank that will say, assume the assets and the liabilities and the deposits and the loans and come in. In this case, because the quality of the loans are so bad, no one would come in and no one would swoop in and buy the bank. That's where everything got completely shut down. If you remember uh, in 2008, Bear Stearns went under. I believe J.P. Morgan Chase swooped in and bought them and bought all the assets. So things were okay. That didn't happen in this case. But 2008, so this is the second largest bank ever to collapse, I believe. Yep. Um, and 2008 was the the biggest bank collapse that we've ever had. Yeah, that was Washington Mutual was the was the bank, the, the biggest bank collapse in yeah. history. That was 2008. Before we get into the ramifications on other banks, I, I do want to, I think this, this next thing that we're going to show you does tie into 2008. And this is our tweet of the week. It's from presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy at Vivek G. Ramaswamy. Ramaswamy. Do you want to spell that for everybody? Yeah, R-A-M-A-S-W-A-M-Y. Or you could just go to his website, also vivek2024.com. I like this guy, Paul. You like this guy. But listen to what he says, what he wants to know about Silicon Valley Bank. Listen to this. I see this bank proclaiming a lot about diversity, equity, inclusion, and environmental, social, and governance factors. I'm looking at my computer screen here at uh, Silicon Valley Bank committing $5 billion to sustainable finance and carbon neutral operations to support a healthier planet. Now, it seems like sustainable finance wasn't all that sustainable and a healthier planet did not result in a healthier balance sheet for this bank. But here's the question to ask. Were they or were they not using ESG factors when determining the credit worthiness of people who they were lending to? Paul, that's a very interesting question. And it sort of ties into what you were saying is that other banks were not willing to buy this bank or buy some of those loans and that debt because maybe they didn't think that they were going to get paid. Is ESG, it certainly isn't making things better for Silicon Valley Bank. No, I mean, it's definitely, I would think, a contributing factor. I don't know for a fact, you know, we don't know right now specifically how much ESG played a role in all of Silicon Valley Bank's loans. But we do know that there's several companies out there, investors, everything, that are now using that as some sort of criteria. And I think anytime you use any uh, factors other than simply the ability of the company to pay back the loan and the health of the loan, and you put any type of other restrictions on it that don't have anything to do with that, you're then weakening that loan. Yeah, and as Ramaswamy went on to point out, the whole cause of the 2008 financial crisis was the loaning of money to people who would never be able to pay these loans back. I mean, I remember neighbors of mine 
who had bought condominiums in California who had no proof of income. They weren't even asked for that. And they weren't even citizens of the United States. I mean, it's just the banks were just giving out money left and right to everybody. Well, and this was at the encouragement of the government. I mean, the government, you know, in the Obama administration was back then. I mean, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and all of these government-owned entities that that under that backstop these loans, they were encouraging equity and lending and lending to people that couldn't afford it. And it was just, it was a disaster. And, you know, I see the government starting to repeat that now with ESG. I mean, you look at, you know, the infrastructure bill, all of that was, is trying to encourage, you know, if you're going to get government loans, you've got to hit certain, you know, environmental ESG goals. Um, You remember the, if you go back once again to Obama and you remember that loan to Solyndra, it was a solar company. I mean, the government made a loan to a company based on environmental factors that had nothing to do with whether they could actually pay the loan back. Well, it's absolutely looks like a replay. Now, we did see some sanity where the Senate, the Congress, both, the Senate killed it 50 to 46 and the House 216 to 204 passed a disapproval resolution, which killed a Biden administration Department of Labor rule to encourage companies like BlackRock and other, you know, private retirement plan fiduciaries to consider ESG factors while making investment decisions. Congress rebuked the Biden administration on that. So hopefully some sanity there, mostly Republicans, but a few Democrats came over. And it's just common sense. I mean, when I saw my neighbors getting no proof of income, interest-only loans, not even paying down the principal, I thought to myself, there's no way that if that's being done on a massive scale, that that could be good. Yeah, this can't, that can't end well. They cannot. And as Ramaswamy pointed out, $5 billion for, you know, sustainability or whatever. I mean, it's just, it doesn't make sense to people who, you know, like me, who make our budgeting decisions based on necessity and common sense. Exactly. We have real problems in the system right now. This is one of the, one of the factors, I think, that are part of it, this ESG factor. The bigger issue right now, though, in the short term, is that bank runs themselves are not rational. I want to read an email that I got. Okay, so I, you know, I invest, obviously, Connor, you and I are a little different. I I mean, I invest on an app about a small, I, I won't even, the amount is so paltry, I won't even tell you, but I do try to follow Paul Pelosi's stock purchases and I, and I put them in this app and, and, uh, you know, I'm not doing great. I don't think anybody's doing great right now, thanks to President Biden and the American Rescue Plan. and Except for Paul Pelosi. Somehow he finds a way to Yeah. I to mean, I have ever. done well on these defense companies, as we talked about with last week with the, the lobbyists and, and, and those companies that are heavily invested in Ukraine have done okay. But I do invest a little. I know you invest a lot more, but who is this email from? You've got me waiting with bated breath. No, I'm not going to say who it's from because I'm not, I don't want to implicate like the name of it. It's a big firm. It's a company. It's, they do private equity deals. They're in New York and they're well-known, big real estate. It's a real estate investment company. Okay. So they've, they've got, you know, billions, I think, under management. So I get this email. I'm going to leave the name out, but I'm, this is a 100% real email that I received. This is not being made up. So it says, 
As I'm sure you are aware, on Friday, March 10th, the FDIC announced that it has taken control of Silicon Valley Bank, potentially impacting businesses that have deposits with SVB. Blank, I'm leaving the name of the firm uh, off, is pleased to reassure all partners and investors that its funds and underlying investments do not have deposits with SVB and are unaffected by the receivership. So that all sounds good. Mm -hmm. Then there's the last sentence of the email. We have been withdrawing our deposits from other regional banks out of an abundance of caution. Sincerely, blank. Blank. Okay. So this is a powerful bank or uh, entity, right? Yeah, they're uh, there's no a, small amount of money in some of these places. No, they're a they're a well-known fund that invests billions of dollars on behalf of clients. So I'm an investor in this fund, right? Okay. I get a sentence from a very high-profile fund saying, we've been withdrawing our deposits from other regional banks out of an abundance of caution. What do you think I would do? What would I do? Withdraw your money. I would withdraw my money. Have you been? Yes, I have. Uh, folks. From, re you know, they're saying regional banks, right? So they're not... Bank of America, Wells Fargo. Well, exactly. And in a case like this, probably those big banks will do pretty well because I think people are going to be taking money out of some of these regional banks, right? Okay. And, and so, and I happen to have some in some regional banks because I happen to like the smaller banks because they have better customer service. I'm not calling India all the time when I need to get something done. But then I see a big company like this saying they've been withdrawing their deposits from regional banks. Now, the run on a bank is totally irrational. These regional banks aren't unhealthy. They are if Paul Runyon's pulling money out. Well, potentially, I guess, right? They become unhealthy when everybody tries to pull out their money. It's not a good sign. So, And people don't want to be, and Paul Runyon doesn't want to be the last one holding the bag, right? It's sort of like, okay. You know, we sort of pride ourselves here on the Midnight Ride of, you know, dropping exclusives. Yeah. Different stories and things that you don't hear on other podcasts. Obviously, every podcast in America is talking about this particular issue. But, but here it is. Midnight Sunday, right? I mean, people are going to be listening to this on their way to work. And again, you don't even have to, it's not, you know, George Bailey opening the bank at, at 9 a.m. It's, it's, I can go to my ATM right now before I go to work and pull out $600. But I can also go to my app and try to transfer. I mean, I don't want, we pride ourselves on breaking news and breaking stories. I don't want to be part of the problem here and causing a major run. But what Paul Runyon just told you folks, is that your bank could be getting run on right now as you listen to this. And and calm down. I mean, I, Paul, how much money do you have in these banks? Less than 250000 Well, I'm not going to comment on that. But what I would say is... Well, if you're not commenting, it might have been more than 250000 <laughs> Yeah, but what, what, well, what I'm saying is if anyone that has under $250,000 in the bank, really, there's no reason to worry. Okay, so it was more than... Even if the bank collapses... There's, you're going to get a check from the FDIC for whatever's in the bank account under 250. But the real systemic risk, as we talked about, is that that's individuals, but that's not businesses. And businesses are the driver of the economy. And businesses go belly up, people are not getting paid. And people lose their jobs and livelihoods. Exactly. I have a friend in Los Angeles who sent me a video, a picture, who drove by the... Uh, First Republic Bank, which is another bank on the West Coast, which is be, is thought of as sort of like the next 
bank with with bad finances, right? When a bank run happens, everybody kind of looks for, okay, well, Silicon Valley Bank's done. What's the next bank that could be in trouble? And New Republic is kind of thought of as that bank. New Republic or yeah, First New, Republic? Oh, First Republic, sorry. Yeah. New, New Republic's that left-wing liberal magazine. I don't know why I got that in my, yeah. in, in my head. First Republic. And there were lines uh, yesterday outside the ATM machine, like 100 people deep at the branch in LA in the rain. There's two things you don't see every day, rain in LA and- This is why, you know, closing a bank on a Friday afternoon is literally the worst thing you can do in the world because people then just have the whole weekend and they just worry. And these are people who most likely have less than 250,000. Exactly. And there's really no reason for them to be pulling the money out. Yeah, their money is insured by the full faith. Yeah. So these individuals who have less than 250,000 that are taking it out, and again, everyone that's listening right now, you you probably, like me, have less than 250000 By you taking your money out and telling your friends that you're doing it, you may be causing a further run. And, and now, eventually, we get to the point where banks could collapse and then businesses can't pay, make payroll, et cetera. It's a cascading effect, and it's a snowball effect. It is. So you may get your money in your bank account back but you may not get your next paycheck because your business, the business did money with that bank. They can't pay anybody. They're going to go belly up. And you may have what's in that bank account, but you may not get anything else. So is the moral of the story here, Paul? And and, and by the way, you know, quick aside, I mean, I think last week's show, you you told us you were down in, where were you? Somewhere in the Caribbean? Oh yeah, Grand Cayman. <laughs> I'm starting to wonder why you're taking all these trips to the, to the Caribbean now, but <laughs> you know, is the moral of the story, don't take, you know, you may take your money out and feel good about having this money under your pillow, but what you're really doing is possibly putting your paycheck in jeopardy or someone else's. Or Exactly. That is why these bank run situations are so irrational. And that's why the FDIC did this insurance sort of plan so that everybody has is protected to prevent those bank runs. In the in the Great Depression in 1929, the stock market crashed. Everybody ran to the bank and the banks fell apart. There was no deposit insurance. So it didn't matter how much you had in the bank, your money was gone. And that started the Great Depression. In the financial crisis in 2009, that limit was raised. It was $100,000 going up to 2000. Eight. Um, after the financial crisis, it got raised to 250000 because of inflation and other things. Yeah. So that helped protect things a little bit more. What they also did was a program called TARP, which was a way for businesses or banks to borrow money from the government to stay afloat. And it actually worked because had, as we all know, banks cannot survive on only deposits of under $250,000. They have to have big business doing money, you know, doing business there to have enough to, to keep going. Yep. And, you know, if all the large investors pull out, the bank's going to go under anyway, regardless of the, the $250,000. So what they did was they allowed banks to borrow money from the government to stay afloat. And it actually worked out well for everybody. The banks stayed afloat, businesses kept their money in, and then the, the banks eventually paid the loans back to the government with interest, and it worked out well. And now there's a debate happening about what to do now. Yeah, I want to get to that. I know we still want to talk about the president's budget request, which is somehow, in my mind, tied into all of this. But let's get to what Swalwell said. I mean, 
should the federal government bail out the people who had more than 250,000? Because it's, it's not only, and everybody who's listening to this, who may be parking near a bank right now, Connor's going to tell you, take a deep breath. Your money is safe. Do not compound the problem. But does this spread to other banks? And should the federal government guarantee that other money? Because we saw, you know, in 2008, just a, a massive thing. And, and this could, this is a wildfire. It could spread far beyond Silicon Valley. I know this is a very, very tough decision. And it's been one of the decisions that, that people have been debating for generations is what do you do with these banks? Because if you guarantee all the money, then it encourages banks to go out and have more risky behavior thinking that the government is going to backstop everything again. Mm -hmm. As we said, you know, the bank runs under $250,000 should be, we should be in good shape. But people with a lot of money in the bank don't have that. Should there be some sort of deposit insurance specifically for businesses so that they don't have to have the bank run as well? Is that going to be thought of as like a giveaway to big business? Obviously you know, Silicon Valley Bank specifically is around big tech. And we know there's no love lost between the Republicans and big tech and for good reason. Is the House GOP going to approve a bailout for all these tech companies that had their money in there? If I'm Jim Jordan and other Republicans, why would I do that? If there is going to be a bailout, just so we're clear, does Congress have to approve that? Yes. Congress has to approve it, especially if they're getting loans from the government. So the FDIC can can back the people to 250 and below. But if we're going to bail out these tech investments, Congress has to approve. And, and so if that's the case, Paul, I want Mr. Ramaswamy's question answered. Exactly. And there need to be some specific things that come to light. I mean, if the bank was making loans and these to tech companies based on ESG... And now these tech companies have all this money in the bank and they want to bail out. What were their policies for lending? What were the company's policies? And why should the taxpayer bail these companies out? I don't know. I mean, so I don't know what the answer to the question is because I potentially think if it were me, I wouldn't do a, a bailout, but I might say that the FDIC, and I think the FDIC can lend you know, they can increase these, the deposit insurance a little bit more because just to let you know, the FDIC, the banks contribute to this. It's like an insurance kind of program. So I think the FDIC can raise that, that deposit protection limit without Congress, but I, they can't do it. You know, it's not retroactive. It's going forward. So that would have to be something that changes. So I don't know where this goes and I don't know what Congress is going to do. And we don't know what's going to happen this coming week. Is this going to cascade? Is it going to be just limited to Silicon Valley Bank? Is First Republic going to go under in a few hours? Are other regional banks going to have problems? I don't know. I mean, a lot of it is going to unfold this week. We've seen with our, our stock investments, you know, the, the Wall Street, you know, it went below 32,000. The Dow went under 32,000. By the way, here, here's a story from CNBC. And I know we're going to get to the thing, the, the next segment here in a second, but Silicon Valley Bank employees received their annual bonuses on Friday, just hours before regulators seized the failing bank. I mean, there is so much here that I think that 
federal regulators and Congress need to know before we make any decisions. But the bottom line is, for all of you, if you have 250000 or less, your money is safe. I don't think we should pull our money out. Runyon may have a different situation. But for normal folks, don't worry about it. Don't contribute to the problem. Final thoughts, Paul? I would fully agree with you. It's always important to remain calm because the bank run, all that does is make things worse. And I think you brought up a really good point about the executives getting bonuses like right before everything fell apart. Any solution that the government comes up with for this, in my opinion, should be not to bail out the bank, not to let the employees get paid. The bailout should only be for the depositors, if there is anything at all, and not for the bank itself. Because if you... If the people at the bank get to keep their jobs, if they get, then that just encourages all the risky, bad behavior that they did and they're getting bailed out. The bank should close. Everyone should lose their jobs. There should be, you know, anyone that works at a bank should realize don't take risks with depositors' money. Absolutely. Well, it's not just Santa Clara where people were taking stupid risks. President Joe Biden, in all of this economic malaise, is now proposing trillions in tax increases. We'll talk about it next on the Midnight Ride podcast. Stay tuned. Paul, it's that time of year again. President Joe Biden unveiling his fiscal year 2024 budget request. Congress will come with their own, but that request is massive. A sec- 6.9 trillion dollars, 1.7 trillion in discretionary spending, including a hefty budget for defense, 885 billion and 809 billion for non-defense, which includes veterans health. But rolled into this bill are massive tax increases, Paul. And and given what we were just talking about, right? And we're trying to combat inflation and you know, we've got banks collapsing, all these other things. Now, granted, the budget was unveiled before the bank was shut down, but this is just, it's either one of two things, and or it could be both. A tone-deaf president and administration, or somebody who knows that this is the opening salvo in a fight, and he needs to appease his base. What is it? Is it both? Uh, I want to get Runyon's thoughts on this monstrosity of a budget. This is the worst budget I've ever seen, period. I've never seen anything so irresponsible in my life. Maybe more more irresponsible than Silicon Valley Bank. Sadly, I have. But, you know, the decisions that were made by some people in my family, they weren't backed up by the American farmer, the American trucker, you know, the American taxpayer. So they went under. We could go under, though, if we had Joe Biden in charge for more than another four years. Yeah, I mean, let's sort of dissect this. Um, And I really, this is either incompetence or it's actively trying to destroy the country. Many people would say it's the latter, Paul. Well, it very well could be. I mean, if it sounds like a conspiracy theory, right? But suppose, obviously, they're going after rich people, right? You go back to Silicon Valley Bank for a second. Suppose every bank account over 250,000 gets wiped out, you've essentially wiped out the wealthy in America and everybody's the same. It would be a completely miserable life for everybody because there would be no 
economy anymore. But hey, is it a way to, to soak the rich, as they like to say? Well, who knows? But this budget certainly is. It's weird, though, because this is the administration. And we would have seen this, too, I think, if Hillary Clinton had been elected in 2016. These are the people backed by Wall Street and all the billionaires. I mean, Gates, Bezos, all these guys, they're, they're Democrats. And they give to the Democrats. And the billionaire class has benefited more from the Biden administration than your average middle-class American by a long shot, Paul. Exactly. The billionaires always kind of remain untouched with these things. So let's, I did want to go into some of the, the taxes in this budget yeah. because, because they're, they're insane. But the Biden administration talking point is we're going to tax the billionaires. So let, let's hear from, from you. What are these tax increases and will they have the effect that the president wants? He's talking about deficit reduction and funding those tax increases, funding some tax breaks for the Connor Coughlins of the world. Help us make sense of all this, Paul. Yeah. First of all, there are no tax breaks in this budget for, for the Connor Coughlins of the world. There's some entitlement giveaways, you know, some more free handouts coming. Well, what about the child tax credit? Is that- Yeah, not- that's, a, that's a handout, right? I mean, that's just giving you money, Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, I mean, if you don't pay any taxes, you can still claim that tax credit and then you just get a check from the government. So all that is is a free handout. Why the government gives you money for anything at all, I don't understand. But look at how this is killing businesses. So the small business tax rate under Trump was 39.6%. Under Biden, budget 44%. The capital gains tax goes from 23.8% to 39.6%. The corporate tax goes from 21% to 28%, making it one of the highest corporate tax rates in the world. The tax on unrealized capital gains, so that's like if you, let's say you own something that you haven't sold, right? Like uh, an asset. Your house. Yeah, you still have to pay tax on it if the value went up. Well, including real estate? Well, it's for people that are making a certain amount of money. So it's not like the average American with a $300,000 house has to pay on it. It's- but as we saw with, with Senator Warren and Elon Musk, I mean, Elon Musk, how do you even measure how much money he's making? I mean, it's, he has a net worth that is assigned to the value of his companies and whatnot, but is he making an income per se? I mean, it, the, the value goes up and goes down but he only makes money when he sells stuff, right? Yeah, he only makes money when he sells stuff. And there's literally no way to determine what these things are worth. I mean, based on these new taxes, the government really is, could you add everything up, it could be taking as much as 60% of a company's profits in taxes. And that doesn't even include state tax. As you can see, we're entering a pretty severe recession. We have bank runs happening. Businesses are in trouble. And Biden responds by raising taxes on the entities that keep this economy going. In addition to this, over the 10-year period of this budget, the national debt is going to go from $31 trillion to $51 trillion. You don't see deficits of under a trillion dollars at all throughout on any of these projections whatsoever. Completely irresponsible. Never been anything so irresponsible that I've ever seen. And you take that on the other side and you look at the spending. What gets the biggest, in, what agency gets the biggest increase of any federal agency in this budget? Do you know? 
which agency gets the greatest increase? Yeah, biggest increase in spending. Well, it's a Biden... Take a guess. It's a Biden government. So I'm going to say health and human services. No, the EPA. I should have guessed that, of course, (laughs) right? The EPA is requesting a 19% increase in... They're requesting a 19% increase for the EPA, adding 2,400 employees, which you, of course, know that all those employees are going to go to harassing businesses even more, right? Making it even more difficult to do business. That's the goal. The uh, Health and Human Services, as you mentioned, is getting a 14% bump, (laughs) In spending. I think the Defense Department is getting like a 3% bump. Yeah, which is actually a cut because inflation is running at 6%. So we're cutting our defense spending in a way. We don't really know how much China is spending. I mean, they're not going to be transparent about Well, they said 7% is what China said is their increase for this year. What they said. That's what they said. It could be 20%. It could be 20%. So even, even if it's what they said, we're doing less than half of an increase of what, of what China's doing. And that's government's main job, is defense. Government's main job isn't to be infor- regulating every aspect of how we live our lives in business. Government's main role is defense. And the Biden administration is showing that, you know, they don't care about our nation's defense. Well, de- defense from foreign threat, as well as maybe criminals, et cetera, things, you know, crime and things like that. Well, you know, and, and you talked about the tax cuts and or the tax increases. No, well, you know what else really quickly? Department of Education is getting like a 12% increase too, which obviously does nothing. So that's one that should be abolished. So you have education and the climate scam getting a massive increase. And, and listen, I'm, I'm for the EPA and their efforts. I'm for clean air and clean water, but this is pandering by the president. Well, and let's remember the EPA doesn't, I mean, look, clean air and clean water is good, but that's not what the EPA does. They, the EPA has tons of rules that have nothing to do with anything that just mire businesses in red tape. And this is a contrast from the Trump administration, which put an EPA commissioner in with the express purpose of gutting those regulations to supercharge the economy. Another thing that supercharged the economy were the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, which, by the way, Paul, many of those taxes or tax uh, cuts were set to expire, are set to expire in the year 2025. That's only two years away. This budget says that the president will keep those for people making less than 400000 He wants to keep that campaign promise. As we've talked about on the Midnight Ride many times, that in in a number of latent manners, the president has actually increased taxes many times on people who make less than 400. But the income tax bracket, less than 400,000, he wants to basically keep those tax cuts, but he wants to let the other ones expire for people making more money. Well, of course, yeah, he does. But obviously with these new taxes that that are being introduced, they may not be directly on people making $400,000, but when you hurt businesses, it's going to keep wages lower. It's going to hurt people's 401k plans and their retirement plans. It's going to make, it's going to hurt many different aspects of their life indirectly because of these taxes. And, you know, we have a government of unserious people, right? I mean, these people are sitting there 
some of the things that, for example, Corinne Jean-Pierre are saying at the podium just demonstrate a complete lack of seriousness. The president knows that the first budget that he sends to Congress is going to be dead on arrival when it hits Kevin McCarthy. Well, I don't know if he knows. He doesn't know his own name, but other people in his administration may know. The people who wrote this monstrosity know that this is the first bid. And, and, you know, anybody who's ever done negotiations or haggling knows that, you know, you need to kind of come in over the top because you know there's going to be a haggling process. This is really red meat to the base. It really is. This isn't even a negotiation. But what we have now is a situation where we're already taking, quote unquote, extraordinary measures because we're over the debt ceiling. $31.6 trillion of national debt. So we've got to come to an agreement on that, the debt ceiling, in the next month or two. And we've got this budget problem. And people in the House, they think like Paul and Connor. They say, hey, you're cutting defense. I mean, inflation is well over 3%. How do you see this playing out? I I see a major battle looming over entitlements, over the debt ceiling and, and and the federal budget. And oh, by the way, one other thing. If you don't pass a budget, you have what I like to call the sequester or sequestration for defense spending, which will delay programs like our bombers and our missiles and our submarines that we need to keep pace with China. I mean, we we got a real problem ahead. What do you think about all this? I think, I don't see how this gets solved. I don't see how you can kick the can down the road anymore at all. I mean, most of this budget, most of the money raised from taxes in this budget is going to go towards paying the interest on the debt with the interest rates higher the way they are. Yep. We've got a huge problem. We're, you know, there's, we're running out of ammunition because of Ukraine. We're having a hard time keeping up with China and we're not doing what it takes to keep the company, the country strong. And all that's happening is that we're just using it to give free handouts. This is essentially socialism 101, where you're just giving handouts to the largest group of people, which is, I would say, the working class, just to get their vote. And it's just for power. This isn't about the country. It's just for their power. I don't think people realize how bad it is. Now, the Democrats in, t- in 2020, they coalesced behind Joe Biden for a couple of reasons. One is the wealthy people didn't want Bernie Sanders, but also they thought that this was a bipartisan guy. And the infrastructure bill was something that he touted as bipartisan. We need bipartisanship on the budget. And we all need to hold the president and our legislators to account, Paul. I'm also not very hopeful, but Kevin McCarthy, I think, has done a great job so far, and he needs to continue to stick to his guns. Final thoughts. Yes. The Republicans in the House need to take a stand on this. They need to hold the line and not let this atrocious monstrosity see the light of day. I don't care what the consequences are. This is horrible. So let's call your congressman, call your senator and say, do not allow this budget to move. I agree. And if they cave on debt ceiling without serious concessions about the permanent fiscal health of our country, then I think you're going to see call Kevin McCarthy very soon as the former Speaker of the House. Well, that's it for another edition of The Midnight Ride. We want to thank you for listening. Keep spreading the word. Keep giving us those five-star ratings wherever you're listening to us. And take a deep breath, folks. Your money is safe. And uh, hang on to it. And we'll see you next week for another edition of The Midnight Ride podcast. For Paul Runyon, I'm Connor Coughlin. Please have a great week. Bye.